you know the deal by now. This podcast is all about the interesting people who make up the rich tapestry of this city. Today, we meet a man who is literally at the centre of the city and the custodian of a building that has stood defiant and stoic there for centuries. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the editor of The Mill. And Yoshi, today we're going to meet another of Manchester's great characters. Yeah, we really are. Nigel Ashworth is the rector of St Anne's, which is on St Anne's Square. It's obviously one of the city's most beautiful buildings, one of the oldest churches in the city. And ever since The Mill's got an office on St Anne's Square in the Royal Exchange Building, we've kind of created a bit of a relationship with the church. I think it was when the I newspaper reported a little story about us and said, you know, we have got this office in in the Royal Exchange. It was actually the church who tweeted saying, you know, welcome to a a bit of the town that used to have the Guardian and used to have other newspapers. And and ever since then, we've been getting to know everyone at the church. We're we're doing our concert next week. So it's really nice to have Nigel on because he's, as you say, an absolute character and a real sort of font of uh, good stories and wisdom about the city. Great. We'll meet Nigel shortly and you can meet Nigel yourself in person at that concert at St Anne's next week. More on that a little bit later on. Firstly, let's get to the briefing, Yoshi, and we will start with growing concern, uncertainty, still a few unanswered questions around the new variant of coronavirus, the Omicron variant, and more measures and eyes in Greater Manchester on the numbers. That's right. Cases are rising in Greater Manchester. They're rising in line with the national trend. So they're not sort of shooting ahead of the country like they were sort of at times last year. And the Greater Manchester case rate, which is not new cases, you know, over over the course of the week per 100,000 residents, that's 400 at the moment. That's up about 10% in the week. England's rate is more like 500, up more like 12% in a week. So we're not seeing dramatic rises yet. But government scientists are saying this new variant is now spreading quite fast and it's clearly causing concern. What we're not seeing yet, I think, is a big rise in local hospital admissions. This is something we always look at on the podcast in weeks like this. There are currently 47 patients with COVID-19 in critical wards in our hospitals. That's actually down, you know, one from last week when it was 48. COVID admissions are not particularly rising. They're pretty much flat on, on last week. So it will take a few more weeks before we see whether these rises are going to generate the kind of increases in hospital admissions that we have seen with other variants and that we saw before um, the mass vaccination programme. That's the real key here. Okay. And as well as that, as well as that, of course, this week, we've been talking a lot about the rules and the measures and the allegations of a Christmas party in Downing Street. It was something that Andy Burnham pointed to when he spoke earlier. And I can understand the frustration people will be feeling today because so many people here sacrificed so much last year, particularly this time last year. And obviously what people are getting from the news uh, today and uh, through this week is the other end of the country in, in Downing Street, an overwhelming sense of do as we say, not as we do. When we were in dealings with Downing Street, 10 Downing Street uh, last year over tier three, it, it was obvious to us that our experience of the pandemic was not their experience of the pandemic. Uh, they were not going through what we were going through. And that, that sense came over very strongly uh, to us at, at that time. This is a key message I want to get over to people. Don't be distracted uh, by the news. We need you to do what's right for Greater Manchester, for your, yourself, your family, your friends, uh, your neighbours, irrespective of what is going on in the government. And it's just really important for me to to say that. 
Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, and Yoshi, just finally on COVID, where are we at on booster shots? Amazingly, 80% of over 70s in Greater Manchester have had a booster shot. Those are the new numbers that were released this week by Andy Burnham. That falls to more like 53% when you're talking about the 50 to 69s. Overall, 75% of adults in Greater Manchester have had two shots of a vaccine now. And overall, when you take all the adults, it's 32% have had a booster. So clearly the older age groups have really rushed to get boosters. And that's obviously good news with this new variant going around. But the overall proportion is still very low, less than a third. Okay, Yoshi, elsewhere, you guys in the Mill newsroom have been keeping an eye on the latest from a really concerning inquest into the death of the Withenshaw toddler Ella Rose Clover. What can you tell us? Ella Rose Clover, who was almost two years old, was murdered by her babysitter, a man called Michael Wilde, and that was in January 2018. And Essentially, with this inquest, people are hoping it will shed some light on a key question, which is, could the medical staff at the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital have recognised the risk to her safety? And this is clearly a national debate at the moment, or at least it's a national sort of issue of concern because of the the case of Arthur Labinia Hughes, a six-year-old who was um, killed by his stepmother in, in Solihull. So people are talking about this issue. You know, we've got you know minute silences at football matches about that. And I think there's just more attention on where these other cases are happening. And just, there seem to be a few of them at the moment. This particular inquest is looking at the fact that Clover was admitted to the hospital on multiple occasions in the run-up to when she was killed. In fact, two months before her death, she had really serious injuries um, that required surgery. And the inquest has heard from Naomi Carter, a home office pathologist, who has described that as as, as a red flag. In amongst, I think, these debates about how you look after children and what the responsibilities of the government are and of the state are when it comes to children, there's the kind of key question of how sensitive should authorities be to warning signs when there are red flags or um, when there are signs that something's going wrong in a home. How aggressive should the authorities be about stepping in? And we've learned at this inquest that the staff at the hospital had a safeguarding meeting. They looked at Ella Rose's bruising patterns. They thought they were consistent with accidental injuries. Clearly at the time, that was their best you know, estimation of what was going on. But the pathologist, you know, looking back now says that, you know, that was incorrect, that assessment. Um, so it's, I think it triggers a, an interesting societal discussion about how should the authorities react to signs that things are going wrong in a family setting and how much do we want to sort of have you know social workers and the police get involved in situations where there might be signs that a child is being abused or not being looked after properly. Okay, and the Manchester Foundation Trust, the Children's Hospital's governing body, admitted that the risk posed to Ella Rose was underestimated. They said that staff at the hospital were premature in ruling the bruising patterns as consistent with accidental injury. That inquest continues, and of course you can read more about it as it happens at manchestermill.co.uk. And finally, Yoshi, we have been hit by a heck of a storm in the last couple of days. I've lost a garden fence. It's going to cost me a fortune to rebuild. And a couple of roofs off buildings and various bits of destruction after Storm Barra. Yeah, it sounds like you've had the worst of it, Daryl, because I think generally speaking, Storm Barra didn't hit Greater Manchester as hard as it hit other bits of the country. And indeed, Ireland, Scotland. It came in on from the Atlantic on Tuesday. Um, there were gusts of up to, I think, 80 miles an hour recorded in Ireland. There were some local rail delays in, in Greater Manchester, I think. Uh, it ripped off the roof of the indoor ski centre in the Trafford Park. So yes, there's there's been some damage. There's been dis- some disruption um, in, in these neck of the woods, but thankfully um, not as bad as some people expected. 
and I should be able to see out of the studio that we record this podcast at Media City, a floating earth. But that succumbed to the storm as well, didn't it? Yeah, this 10 metre tall floating artwork of the earth, um, which was actually installed on Sulfukis to highlight climate change issues, has has sort of crumpled up. It hasn't sunk, actually, but it's sort of sitting there looking very sad. It was going to be lit up as a part of this festival that's going on, but it, it won't be now. And I suspect, in fact, I know that that sort of damage caused to it by the storm has garnered much more publicity than the original <laughs> installation. So I'd imagine even though the whoever created it is probably very uh, disappointed that it won't be lit up, they're probably also delighted that their message has got out there on the BBC, ITV, and indeed on the Manchester Weekly from the Mail. Exactly. Almost as if it was orchestrated by the artwork, by the artist, right? Yoshi, for now, thank you. It was one of those scenes that will never leave me. Watching a sea, no, not even a sea, an ocean of flowers. Thousands of people standing shoulder to shoulder in heartbreak. And in the middle of all of that, a stoic figure. St Anne Square became a focal point of grief in the aftermath of the Manchester bomb in the spring of 2017. And St Anne's Church kept a defiant watch over it all. A building that had seen hard times before and remained unmoved again. The church has been led through those hard times by one of the city's other great figures, Canon Nigel Ashworth, who is the rector at St Anne's and joins us on the podcast now. Nigel, hi. Thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to talk to you. It's a pleasure. It really is. You and your church are a centre point, almost literally, really, of the city. Your early childhood takes us to another centre point as well, because I'm right in thinking your dad worked as a trader at the Royal Exchange on St Anne's Square. He did. Well, it was an exchange and it was called Being on Change. And it used to be on Tuesdays and Fridays, as I remember. What do you remember of that setting, of being in that iconic building and seeing your dad at work? Well, I don't think I ever saw him actually at work. He took me to see the place and he took me to see where it was. And of course, in those days, the Royal Exchange itself, it was absolutely vast. I've never been in such a big place. It's a cathedral-sized place. And uh, it was incredibly impressive. And of course, I was a little boy. My dad was an immense hero. So it was incredibly exciting to see the place where he worked. And in fact, the exchange as an exchange floor closed in I think it was 1965. And we have a family photograph of the last day of trading on the floor of the exchange. And it's taken from way up in the high dome above the trading floor. And the photograph is of all the members of the exchange, including my father, just scattered across this huge, huge, huge floor. And they're all looking up at the historic photograph that's a poignant picture, for that is really the very end of the great industry which shaped this city and this region. And it was your grandmother, wasn't it, Nigel, who led you to Christianity? In a funny way, yes. I had a really beautiful singing voice. My grandmother was, you know, a power in the land in our family, and she decreed that Nigel must join the local church choir. And so without any question whatsoever, I did exactly that. And being part of that choir, which in those days meant I would be in church twice on a Sunday, usually, singing psalms and all of those things, it gives you something, you know, which you don't really define at the time, but you find in the end 
that something's got into your bloodstream and it's absolutely transformative. So that's what happened to me. I think I was probably about eight when I did that. And you went on to be ordained, of course. And after that, life and the work took you down south to Oxford. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I did lots of things before I was ordained, but when I finally was ordained, I was a curate, actually, in in Yorkshire. So I was a curate in this fantastic community just outside Leeds, a place called Rothwell, and I became the chaplain of the Immigration Detention Centre at Oxford, which is called Campsfield House. It sounds fairly kind of friendly as an immigration detention centre, or or a bit, but, you know, when you've got 20-foot fences with two rolls of razor wire around the top, you know you're not really in a, an Airbnb establishment. Mm. And that was quite an experience for you, wasn't it? And you saw some the real sharp end of life for some people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My life before I was ordained had to, taken me to work in different countries. So I had some real awareness about the ordinary life, particularly people in India where I lived for two years, and also West Africa. We had 200 men 40-odd different countries at any one time. So it was really a very interesting place. I was one of the few people in that whole establishment who wasn't an immigration officer or a lawyer or somebody who was a security person. I was one of the very few people who was there to ensure that everybody could have the kind of decent treatment that we expect people to have and, and to be able to exercise their rights to, for example, a religious life A lot of the people there are coming from very, very troubled circumstances. A lot of them are going to have got other issues. They might have been convicted of crimes, imprisoned in this country, and they're really on their way out because there's a a minister signed a deportation order hanging over their heads, which is about to take place. I met a guy from Jamaica, for example, one day, just came into the centre. Really an immense character. He's a big guy, and he was a bit larger than life in every way. And he lived in this country and was married to a woman of uh, British citizenship. And he'd been arrested one day because he'd driven this huge American car with the big fins in one of those classic cars that he had. He'd driven that to his local corner shop to buy a lottery ticket. And he was in the shop and somebody drove down the street and bashed into his car. And so he was furious and went out and had a big stand-up Barney and the police were called. He ended up getting arrested, whereupon it was discovered. In fact, this poor chap, who had several children as well, was an illegal entrant into the United Kingdom. So he got arrested and he told me this story. The day he was arrested and he said to me, you know, with indignation, but kind of appealing for a bit of human regard you know he said to me so what do you think about that then and i said to him well i think you know you shouldn't gamble and uh, he burst out laughing when he heard that you know i wasn't being unkind to the guy it was humor and actually that bridge of humor is such an important connection between people it takes the sting away having some kindness and human regard and it just helps people see the world in a better light and help to see themselves in a better light is important. And this was clearly a very formative experience for you. You brought those experiences back to Manchester and to St Anne's Church. How was it when you found it? Well, I arrived and I was put in as the new rector of the city centre of Manchester. You know, all I can tell you is the first six months, I did all my normal jobs, but I was in my mind, I was saying to myself, how did this happen? 
how did I end up here? You know, this is where I started off. You know, I've been around the world. I've done all kinds of things. And here I am back in Manchester city centre. And wow, what an interesting place it truly is. And of course, in the intervening period, the city has changed. You know, when I was a teenager, it wasn't this scintillating place that we now see. There weren't cafes all over the place. There weren't even very many restaurants. It is, isn't it? It is absolutely incredible. Even in my time of being in Manchester, it's transformed. It's grown around St Anne's Church, with St Anne's Church as a sort of stoic, defiant figure in the centre of it. And the people, I guess, have changed as well. And Manchester as a city is now full of a really diverse range of people. And I, I guess, Nigel, that your previous experiences of being in other parts of the world, but also at that detention centre in Oxford, made you quite familiar? Did it allow you to be quite familiar with the concept of leading a parish that was very diverse? Absolutely, it did. It really is true that ever since we became a city and not just a town, this has been a city based on immigration. And that's such a big statement, but it's so true if you really look at what's happened. You know, the Germans came in the 1830s and 40s. Lots of Irish people came here, reviving the Roman Catholic Church here and so on. We found waves of immigration, for example, of course, importantly, the Jewish people coming from persecution in Eastern Europe. This is all in the 19th century. And then we can think of the Chinese community. We have our Chinatown. Not many cities in the world in the West have that. And we have it because we've had waves of immigration involving people who've come ultimately from China. In more recent years, we've had Eastern Europeans, of course, people from the subcontinent and West Africa and the Caribbean. The whole of the history of this city has embraced and been built on that phenomenon. We've never been a city that didn't have it. The changing nature of cities mean that those people who live in the centre of them tend to skew quite a bit younger. That is your parish, isn't it? And... If we were to couple that with what we know of the changing habits when people, with people coming into religion, less perhaps younger people attending church, how does that challenge affect you? How do you face that challenge? Well, that's a really big question. The fact that people are not involved with, for example, the Christian faith or some outward expression of it, for example, like a church community, doesn't mean that they have no sort of spiritual feeling for things at all. However, people don't necessarily know a great deal, really, about the Christian faith. They get quite modelled up. Do people really understand the profound tenets of the faith and how we're meant to behave and so on and how we're meant to relate to each other and what are the inner dynamics of it? That's really, really important. And we need to discover new ways to communicate that. It's a subtle kind of thing in some ways. But, of course, for Christians, it's all focused around the person of Christ himself. Christmas tells you that. Reflecting on what that means and helping people to connect with that, which I think you can do. After all, all of us have been born. Hopefully, all of us, certainly most of us, can understand something of the vulnerability and the fragility of life that that birth tells us about. So once you begin to, for example, just set that forward, then I think a lot of people can connect with what that means. There's a long way from there to being a kind of devoted Christian person, but I think you start there where people might be able to connect. And you've led those people who have come to you to connect at St Anne's Church 
through all sorts of different ups and downs, great times and difficult times. One of those was the spring of 2017 and the Manchester Arena bomb. St Anne's Square and ultimately where the church sits became a focal point for people's outpouring of grief and standing together in defiance. What do you remember of that time? Oh my gosh, that was a very, very vivid experience, wasn't it? Not just for me, but for the church, but really for everybody. What an experience that was. I mean, what a dreadful, dreadful experience. But something good underneath it was discovered. Something, I think, which has always been there, which we maybe don't realise a lot of the time. That experience, really, of solidarity that we had across the whole city, that was absolutely extraordinary. It came out of this experience of being attacked. And we were basically saying, we are not going to allow our city to be trashed. The attack happened on a Monday night. Very early on Tuesday morning, we started to have people come with flowers. And very quickly, the square, as everybody knows, filled filled up with flowers. And the atmosphere there was very reflective. One day I was in the church and the square was full of people and all these flowers and lots of people were in the church because they were signing our books of condolence and lighting candles and things. But there was an enormous roaring noise outside. I mean, it was motorbikes. This was a load of bikers who'd come to pay their respects. (laughs) And their way of paying respects is to, apparently, uh, to have a kind of big mass roar of engines. And nobody thought that was at all peculiar or unacceptable or weird or anything. And anyway, then they roared off and they roared off down Deansgate into the distance. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And within a minute, more or less, of them leaving, a Ukrainian bishop with a choir led prayers and sang Ukrainian sacred music on the other side of the square. These two groups were, you know, in a way doing the same thing, but (laughs) in extraordinary different ways. This city is able to allow both of those things to be together, unlike it's not strange. We accept this. Now, that is what diversity is about. Because somebody roars their engines, I don't have to start kind of getting cross about it or saying they're wicked people or some madness like that. Or because they're Ukrainians, I don't have to start getting xenophobic about it. I mean, that's stupid. The fact is this city cradles all these different traditions, and that's part of the wonder of it. And we in St. Anne's, we're right at the heart of this, so we have to embrace it. I mean, what a peculiar lot we'd be if we didn't. Yeah. Wow, what a wonderful story. What a lovely, lovely story. And you're right, St. Anne's cradled the city at that time, and it was there for us through a difficult period. And Nigel, we are at a a moment in history now where the church needs us in return. And COVID has been a rough ride, and the upkeep of a church isn't easy. Can you give us some context as to where the church is at now? Well, we're still here. That's the first thing. We're still here, and we're still ready to do what we need to do. But, you know, we need to be able to function. In order to function a place like that, and you can't just say, here it is, we'll open the doors, that's it. You, you can't do that in the city centre because people will walk in 
Some of them will walk in just because they want to sit down quietly. Others will want, walk in, want to have a maybe rather an in-depth conversation about something maybe important to them, maybe quite serious to them. Others will come in simply because they actually just need a little bit of human contact. And the thing about a church is, if you're a rich person, if you're a poor person, if you're homeless, if you're a foreigner, if you're just a tourist, someone will be nice to you. Someone will give you a little bit of recognition. That is important. And we try to offer that. But you can't offer that without people. And that really means you're going to have to employ people And so you've got to have an organization which can deliver that. And we're not an organization which has got tons of money and, you know, we don't, haven't got enormous endowments where we can draw down an income and, you know, like a kind of pension to eternity. We've got to earn our keep. And so we have lots of events in the church, which is also nice because it welcomes people in and they generate some income for us. That couldn't happen during the lockdown. Um, but we still didn't want to make our staff redundant. And one of those events, Nigel, takes place next week. We've been talking about it a lot on the podcast, and it is the Christmas concert, the Carol's concert with The Mill, next Thursday. Well, actually, this is a great event. I, I think it's very, very exciting. I mean, The Mill is a very, very exciting development in Manchester. I'm over the moon about The Mill coming along because... Where we are, not far away, on Deansgate used to be the MEN offices and all their newspaper and journalism. We used to have, on the other side, Cross Street, where Boots is now, there used to be The Guardian. It was a Manchester Guardian. We used to have, in the print works, Daily Telegraph, I think, was it the mirror in there? The Daily Express was up on Anko Street. And all these newspapers, they've, they've kind of left us, you know. And, of course, newsprint is... A dying medium completely. So having real journalism with all its kind of truth-seeking and looking and drawing attention to the really interesting things about our lives, that happening is brilliant. So we've got this event, the Miller's Carols in St. Anne's, and it's on the 16th, and it's a carol concert, and we want people to come and experience the church and experience the music we have in church, because one of the big things which we could have talked about in St. Anne's is the music, because it's such a big musical place. So we've got our own choir, which is one of the best parish church choirs across the whole of the north of England. I'm quite sure about that, maybe the best. And we've got some other musicians coming along to enrich the thing. So we've got some great music. Everyone's going to have a chance to sing some of their favourite carols. And I think it's also got this extra thing element, which is we've been living through this terrible time and people want to reach out and connect. But one good thing which has happened through the lockdowns and pandemic is the coming into our city centre of the mill. And this is going to be the first in-person kind of event that the mill has ever had. So we are really thrilled. So please do come along. Uh, the details about how to get a ticket and all of those things are on the the Mill website. We'd love people to come. Nigel, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It really has. And to learn more about you. Uh, I will be there, of course, next Thursday. So I look forward to meeting you in person then and giving back to this wonderful stoic building that gave us so much during those years. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks very much. Okay, Yoshi, what's cooking in the Mill newsroom, my friend? 
it's looking very festive in the newsroom, actually. We've got uh, some Christmas lights up. We've got a wreath that we brought from that nice little independent flower shop just off Piccadilly Gardens. We've been doing a little bit more digging into the Burnage story that we talked about last week. We talked a lot about local politics on last week's podcast. And we've been having a little bit more of a look down there. And, and, and Harry's been, um, you know, knocking on some doors, as it were. So it'd be interesting to see if we can get a bit more out on the, in the newsletters in the coming weeks on that. The print edition is coming off the press on Monday. So we're actually going to start distributing it on Monday night or Tuesday, which is very, very exciting. And if any uh, listeners fancy um, helping us out with the distribution, they know where to find us on the, on the normal mail email. And then, yeah, we've got, the, we've got the concert next week, which is going to be really nice. It's probably going to be the first time that I get to meet, you know, dozens of, of our readers and our, our members, people who we've emailed back and forth with, been in a Facebook group with, who've left comments on the stories, who've sent in ideas, and obviously who've supported us financially. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I sort of hope that the... Uh, concern about the new variant and the new restrictions don't put too much of a damper on on that but we'll uh, i guess we'll have to see yeah and that's my nod for this week next thursday 7 30 st Anne's church you can meet as well as that nigel who is the star of course of today's podcast you can see him in the flesh and it'll be a lovely lovely evening hopefully fingers crossed i think we're in sort of finger, keeping fingers crossed sort of territory aren't we at the moment and, and what else is happening yoshi what else should we do around greater manchester what's your nod for this week well, I think it's only fair <laughs> to big up the Light Waves Festival in Salford Keys, which is what this enormous earth that's now crumpled into the water was going to be a part of. It starts on Sunday, they're transforming outdoor spaces in, in Salford Keys with a trail of illuminated artworks, these enormous things that are going to light up in the water and along the um, quayside. So Sunday night that kicks off, definitely worth a go. Okay, Yoshi for now. Thank you. Thanks to Nigel as well. And thank you to you for being with us this week. Don't forget to hit like, follow or subscribe on this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can get it first in your feed. Plenty more where this came from as well from the Mill newsletter. Subscribe now, manchestermill.co.uk.